Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, it's Roz Taylor. Did you know that The Bunker is on Instagram? We're at bunker underscore pod. So give us a follow for clips, previews and much more. Welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. She's been MP for Walthamstow in North London since 2010, and she's one of Labour's most outspoken MPs about Brexit. Welcome to The Bunker, Stella Creasy. Hi, Roz. Labour's currently picking lots of candidates for the next election, and you've been involved in trying to enable that not just more women, but more mothers of younger children can stand for Parliament. Tell us about that. Yeah, the Good Parliament project shows very clearly that of the women who are going into politics, either their children are substantially older or they don't have children at all. It's comparatively rare for someone to be in my position. I have two toddlers, which, as you can imagine, is a bit of a nightmare to try and coordinate with a parliamentary timetable. That means we're missing out on a whole wealth of talent, inside experience, uh, energy, not because those women don't want to be members of parliament, but because the way in which we select and the way in which we elect and then the way in which we run our democracy mitigates against being able to combine that with being a a parent. Changing that, for me, starts with changing how we're selecting people. Um, Anybody who knows my story knows that I've had some pretty horrible experiences in Parliament trying to make being an MP and being a mum combined. So I didn't have any maternity cover. I ended up having to take my baby into the chamber and Parliament devoted a lot of time and energy to passing laws to stop that, to stop mums being in the parliamentary chamber. So to my mind, parliament itself is never going to get to grips with these issues unless there is pressure from outside. And that starts with selecting women who understand those challenges and are going to fight for them. And the Mother Red campaign has funded 55 women to stand for office who are mums. I'm really pleased to tell you at this point in time, 11 of them have been selected so they stand a good chance of being elected if people vote for them Um, but we're hoping there's a few more as well who will get supported and for me that's brilliant a because it stops people saying to me oh this is just about self-interest as if all I am is a baby making factory I've stopped being a political person a campaigner I've just become somebody who has babies and in fact one of my male colleagues in parliament once said that to me quite recently it means that we get we open up parliament to a whole range of people But we also have a group of people who can understand why we have to change the way in which we do politics, because it's not actually about whether or not these women will come forward. These are women who've always wanted to be involved in politics. It's about the environment we ask them to operate in. And I am very mindful at the moment that so often when it comes to questions about diversity and questions about, well, who's missing from our politics, we tend to look at the person who's missing and say, well, what's wrong with you? And why can't you take the heat of the kitchen rather than asking What's wrong with the way in which we do politics that we exclude this whole group of people from our political policymaking process, not because of their interests, but because of the way in which we work? And I think one of the women who's benefited from this initiative is Miata Van Buller, uh, who's often on our sister podcast, Oh God, What Now? That's right, isn't it? 
Yeah, and actually one of the things that's been fascinating about it is in taking away this barrier. So what Mother Ed has done is it has funded mums to run for selection because if you've got to cover childcare costs as well as pay for leaflets, go campaigning, um, go and speak to members of a political party about why they should support you to be selected, that is an additional barrier. But actually taking away that barrier has opened up a whole range of other issues. So one of the things I'm really proud about is when I look at the 55 women that we funded, frankly, they look nothing like the status quo in Parliament. So a third of them are from black and ethnic minority backgrounds. I think 25% of them are single parents. 20% of them have children with special educational needs. A quarter of them are from some of the lowest income backgrounds. They truly do represent voices, experiences, ideas that haven't really been part of British politics. And I think it's not that the people here can't understand those issues. It's that when you get that mix of people in a room, you get much better policymaking. So, you know, I don't think anybody who can look at British politics right now thinks it's going well, but making it work and making democracy be representative is about understanding that when you take away one barrier, you remove a whole host of others too. So there's a lot still to be done because there's a Tory MP who has been deselected by her local constituency because she went on maternity leave. Just literally come back from maternity leave and been asked to take part in a in a trigger ballot process, which is basically the process whereby your local members can decide they still want to keep you as a candidate. This is one of the challenges I have spent years raising with the parliamentary authorities that by their lack of having policies. So in any other workplace, it would be illegal what happened to me. Um, I was literally less than 24 hours having given birth on the phone to ministers trying to support people in my constituency because there was no cover for me to do my job. And I didn't want to let people in Walthamstow down. That's illegal. In any other workplace, it's illegal to ask anybody to work in the two weeks after they've given birth, let alone in most workplaces, there is maternity cover and maternity leave. None of that is organised for MPs. And the parliamentary authorities made great play of the fact that we don't have employment contracts to be able to do that. And the question for me is twofold. One, as I say, who's missing out on being part of public life because we don't have policies in place that mean that you can combine? Or you get to a point where people say, well, I don't want to vote for a woman of childbearing age. It's never men. We never expect the men to be looking after their children. That's a whole other challenge. But, you know, I don't want to vote for these women because they might take maternity leave. But also, what message does it send to employers around the country if the place that makes the laws on maternity discrimination doesn't uphold them? You know, so if we don't walk the walk, how can we talk the talk? Parliament isn't going to change from within. It needs that external pressure. I talk to people across the country. They think it's bizarre and they cannot understand why there isn't a process in place because of the message it sends. And you know, most employers are well ahead of the parliamentary authorities in terms of recognising they don't want to lose people and also recognising that dads need to be able to take time out and be able to balance being a good dad with being a good employee. That's why it needs to change. And I am determined it has to change, not because I promise you, I don't intend to have any more children, but because I think that we are missing out on so many people, not just in public life, but in employment across the country. You know, we saw during the pandemic, maternity discrimination cases just shoot up. We've seen thousands of women leaving our workforce because they can't make it work. And it's always women paying the price, but actually families are suffering too, because particularly those families on the lowest incomes are finding that the support for why this matters just isn't there. That needs to come from the top. And so the fact that it's happening in Parliament shouldn't be considered a, you know, an example of the challenges to come. It should be a clarion call for why we've got to get it right. 
You've also been involved with a private member's bill. Um, you're supporting a bill that would make sexual har- harassment illegal. And that feels like major progress. I mean, for at least 20 years of my life, sexual harassment was absolutely routine. But you want to tackle a loophole in the bill. What is that loophole? Yeah, so let's be clear. Sexual harassment, public harassment has always been illegal, but every woman knows that it's never taken seriously. And that's really worrying because we know not everybody who harasses women on the street ends up being a rapist or a sexual abuser, but quite a lot of them start with that sort of behaviour. Um, I've always said I'll stop campaigning on this when I go to a wedding and the bride gets up and says, well, he followed me down the street talking about what he wanted to do to my breasts. And I thought it was the most attractive thing ever and just had to get to know him better. You know, doesn't happen. Um, what is really good is after six, seven years of campaigning, not to make sexual harassment an offence because it is, but to recognise how misogyny drives crimes against women, because right now that's a loophole in our hate crime legislation There is a piece of legislation before Parliament called the Public Harassment Bill, which has been brought forward uh, by Greg Clark, who's a Conservative MP for Tunbridge Wells. So it's got the stamp of approval of mainstream Britain that will clarify that if you are targeting people for harassment and it can be proven that you are doing it because of their sex or their perceived sex. So basically you're targeting and it, it, it covers both men and women, but it will be mainly women we know from the data who will benefit from this. That will secure a higher penalty in law than harassment that isn't about somebody's sex. And that sends a message, A, to the police to start recording the data, because we know 11 police forces out of the 40 in the UK, sorry, in England and Wales, are already doing this, and it's made a real difference in how they tackle violence against women. But it also gives the courts the ability to say, actually, targeting women just for walking about the streets is not okay. And that's not just about sexual harassment, it's about any form of harassment. I had... um, women in my local community who were wearing hijabs who were being targeted. And currently they have to choose between which element of their identity. So they have to say, well, it's because I'm a Muslim, but actually it was because they were Muslim women and it wasn't taken as seriously as it should have been. This, we hope, will change it. The problem we have with the legislation right now is because it is based on a public order offence, public order offences allow those accused of them to claim a defence that they thought their behaviour was reasonable. Now, other forms of harassment legislation say the concept of whether something is reasonable is open to interpretation. So basically, whether anybody else would have thought you were reasonable, whether you ought to know better. In public order offences, that isn't there. So we want to close the loophole that means that no defendant can say, she just can't take a compliment. And that is a reasonable defence against a harassment charge. I am hopeful because, again, there is agreement across Parliament that this is a loophole that needs to be addressed, but it can be amended so that we say, actually, if a defendant wants to say it was a joke, I don't know why she reacted like that. And most reasonably, people would say, because it's not a joke to follow a woman down the street leering at her when she's clearly not interested. You know, this isn't about seduction gone wrong. This is a form of harassment. And actually, in the 21st century, we all know that. And therefore, you are guilty of this offence. It's up to the ministers to respond to the amendments that we proposed. And we're hoping in March to hear whether they're going to do that. And if they don't, we'll put it to a test in Parliament. The 2024 general election will make history, not least because it's the first one a Prime Minister looks like he's actively trying to lose. Stay on top of the vote and cut through the nonsense with Oh God, What Now? The original no bullshit politics podcast. 
with me, Dorian Linsky, plus top journalists, comedians, and commentators. Twice a week, we follow Richie Sunak's doom spiral, keep a critical eye on Keir Starmer's progress, look at the big issues that will shape the vote, and have a desperately needed laugh as well. We are proudly independent, so we don't have to stick to fake balance or give a weak both sides take on any issue. We can call it all as we see it, and we can swear too. So if you're looking for election coverage that captures how people really feel, try Oh God, What Now? High quality analysis, brilliant conversation and jokes twice a week with extra special editions in the run up to the election too. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. You've been in the Commons for 13 years now. Your party has not been in power. And what was it like to join Parliament just as Labour was going out? I mean, you must sometimes be frustrated at all you could have done and all that's been thwarted in that time. Well, I've I've never believed that you have to be in office to have power. I've believed that you fight for office to fast track the work that you would have undertaken. So that's why, absolutely, I got elected in 2010 and nobody was more distressed than me that we didn't win that election. And I think subsequently seeing many of the decisions that have been made, you know, we spent 13 years dealing with the consequences of austerity. And austerity has stripped away the bare bones of our economy and our society. So then when big crises came along, like Brexit, like the pandemic, we've really struggled as a country, because all that underpinning all those foundations were just eaten away by austerity. Imagine if we'd spent 13 years investing in, say, tackling the gender pay gap or the ethnicity pay gap and in valuing the people in our country, how much stronger and more resilient we would have been. And that's not just me lofty ideals, all the evidence and the economic data from other countries that have invested in their public and have invested in trying to tackle these issues and discrimination and the barriers in society are much stronger and more resilient. But I also refuse to accept that the job of an opposition MP is just to sit on the sidelines like Waldorf and Stabler. That's why it's in my Twitter bio, you know, shouting occasionally and saying, just you wait till we get into the government. I've refused to believe that we have to wait around for a Labour government to make progress. I know that getting a Labour government will make making progress a lot easier because you will be going with the wind rather than sailing against it. And that's why, you know, we've taken on the payday lenders, we've taken on the anti-abortionists in Northern Ireland to give women equal rights there, the work we've done around gang crime and tackling housing problems, the work we're now doing on buy now, pay later companies. And obviously, when it comes to Brexit and what can be done, you know, you should never accept a politician who says, well, I've got really strong views, but I'm just going to sit it out for five years because that isn't what the job is. Well, on Brexit, of course, as I talk to you, there's a lot of Excitement, relief perhaps about the Windsor Agreement and what that's going to do for Northern Ireland. But that's only part of course of the disaster that has been Brexit. Let's talk about the retained EU law bill, because while it hasn't got much attention, people who are paying attention to these things think it could be absolutely disastrous. Tell us why. It's a massive disaster because under the cover of Brexit, the government is trying to execute a power grab of epic proportion. We think it will be around 5,000 different areas of law in total. Um, It's not entirely clear because the legislation that they've written gives them the power to delete any law that has its origins in making good uh, a commitment made of being part of the European Union, which is quite a broad idea. Um, So we think there's about 5,000 different areas of law that this legislation will delete. That's one thing. 
but then the right to decide what happens because you've deleted that law falls to ministers, not to parliament. So there'll be 5,000 areas of public life, and these cover things like your rights at work to paid leave, maternity cover, equal pay, um, environmental standards, conservation, whether you have sewage in the water or not, but also your consumer rights, like whether you get compensation if your um, flight is delayed or your train doesn't turn up. All of those areas of policy will be determined by ministers rather than parliament. So the ultimate, ultimate irony about all of this is that we were told that Brexit was about taking back control and it will take back control, but not to the British Parliament, to Number 10 Downing Street and the executive if this piece of legislation goes through. And you're part of the Labour movement for Europe. Given that Keir Starmer's position on Brexit is pretty clear, no return to the single market, what are your priorities? What can you do as part of this movement? Well, I'm the chair of the Labour Movement for Europe, and we are very clear that it's not that you can make Brexit work. Brexit is a series of problems that need to be resolved. Now, the question is, how quickly can you resolve them? Because I see every single day businesses who are struggling. You know, We know that exports have fallen through the roof. We know that people aren't able to get jobs anymore because their companies are saying, well, sorry, it's much harder for you to get a visa to go and work. So we're going to take somebody with a European passport. Um, we know there are issues with security and data sharing. And obviously, we've seen what's happened in Northern Ireland over the last couple of years, all damage that's been done by Brexit. And we can all see that damage is only going to get worse. But that means you have to say, well, what can we do now? And I want to be really clear, the idea that rejoining the European Union is the answer doesn't respect either the fact that, well, frankly, the European Union are looking at us saying, you're a very divided country. It just means like Scotland, you'd have referendum after referendum, you wouldn't have that consistency that we would need to be able to make this worth our while. Or the situation, for example, you talk to people from the Ukraine who are trying to join the European Union. And, you know, that's a process that takes 10 years, seven of its fast tracked. I want to see results now. But that means we need to look at what kind of relationship we can build with the European Union. And our role as a labour movement for Europe is to make that case for those very basic progressive values of internationalism and why you cooperate with other nations and show what that could look like. Now, you talk about the single market and the customs union. I have to say I'm on a one-woman mission to change the way people talk about the single market because people talk about it like it's the hokey-cokey, as in we're either in it or we're out of it. We are currently still part of the single market. We're following single market rules. I mean, that's what the retained EU law bill will destroy. And that's why the European Union are saying, if you pass this piece of legislation, you will start a trade war. Because if you remove basic employment protections like uh, the agency workers rule and the paid holiday rule, then you're basically trying to start a war to the bottom and and a race to the bottom, which will undermine how we trade with you. So we are already part of those conversations about what are the common standards? What are the things that we are doing so that we can trade with each other. The question for me is, what are the options for us if we wanted, whether we look at the trade agreement that was signed by the government, whether we look at what happens when that trade agreement is up for review in a couple, in 18 months or so time, that could bring us benefits that are good for British business. So when I talk to businesses in my constituency, you have to get lots of pieces of paperwork to export a single stock cube I know they want us to get rid of that red tape. It's an irony for me that this government has brought in more red tape than anyone could ever accuse the Labour Party of ever doing. There are things that we could do, relationships that we could um, negotiate, deals that we could make to help British business to get that trade back on track. What you've seen this week with the Windsor deal, I think, is 
an open eye opener to what can be done. And I, I, it's extraordinary to me to have the prime minister who boasts about being a Brexiteer go to Northern Ireland and boast about how brilliant it is to be part of the single market and the customs union, and yet deny those benefits of having those trading relationships and looking at what relationship could be built up and how much you align and what that offers to businesses in the rest of the UK. So our job in the Labour Movement for Europe and anybody who's interested in those debates is to have that debate and to make those cases. And that's exactly what we're doing. Does it feel a little bit now as though the tide has turned and you can afford to be a bit optimistic about the chances of a Labour government? You know, the the 15 to 20 point lead in the polls has been holding steady. Do you feel now this really could be the time? Oh, look, I mean, I, I, I come at this and I say, I, I joked earlier about being a, a grandee. I mean, that's terrifying to me just because I'm in my mid 40s. And it's when I have the same conversations with my staff about who David Bowie was, you know, you suddenly feel very old. I remember how I felt in 1992, 93, as a young campaigner, looking at the damage that a government was doing and thinking it was an article of faith that if you elected a Labour government, it could do something that would be better now I know it can. I know things, you know, terrible phrase, and things can only get better. Things could be better. So I know how much is at stake. If you want me to be hopeful that I think the British public want to hear the case for the alternative, yes, absolutely. But none of us are taking anything for granted because we've seen how much worse it can get. You know, we talk about the European Union. And one of the things I feel passionately about is that we have to challenge those people who want to make out that cooperating with our neighbours is always going to be against our interests. It's either the UK or the European Union, because if we don't challenge that, and you're right, you know, 18 months ago, nobody wanted to talk about Europe, nobody wanted to talk about Brexit. I think because the whole leaving of the European Union, the whole Brexit debate felt so emotionally overwhelming for so many of us, because we weren't talking about Europe and the benefits of cooperating and coordinating with our neighbours, we're now in a position where there are serious politicians in, in Parliament who have positions of leadership pondering whether we should leave the European Court of Human Rights. Now, I was pleased to hear the Prime Minister say yesterday, no, that's not something he would support. But we all know that there are Conservatives who want to keep going on this kind of isolationist idea that Britain does better when it goes it alone. And I see that going it alone attitude as a kind of Britain becoming smaller and being fearful of being able to be in the room and make the argument. But I also see on things like the situation in Ukraine, you know, how much stronger we could be if we were part of those discussions in the European Union, challenging the, the Germans on their approach to energy, for example. Uh, what else we could do when it's supporting refugees and tackling the the impact that's having in the European Union? You know, when you see those small boats and you see people fleeing persecution and you see states becoming isolationist rather than going, actually, how do we tackle the causes of this? And also, how do we play our bit in helping those people seeking sanctuary? I know why it all matters. So I'm pleased that people are beginning to recognise that going down this path of isolating Britain from the world makes us smaller, not taller. But I know there's a lot more work to do to make the case for why it matters to cooperate. You know, why does it, why did Winston Churchill think that the European Court of Human Rights was so important in protecting people's rights? is a conversation we need to have. Well, we've seen how much public opinion can change in just a few years. Stella, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And uh, if anybody's interested, please keep being part of the conversation and check us out in the Labour Moon for Europe because we're, work- we're really keen to have it. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. I'm Rob Hutton and I grew up watching war movies with my dad, but my kids just don't get it. 
so I had to find someone to watch them with me. And that's me, Duncan Weldon, and I do get it. So I was only too happy to join Rob and guests such as Al Murray, Helen Lewis, and Saturn Sangara as we rewatch the greatest war movies of all time. So join us on War Movie Theatre to talk about classics from Where Eagles Dare to Zulu to The Sound of Music. That's War Movie Theatre, wherever you get your podcasts. Bunker Daily was presented by Podmasters contributing editor, Roz Taylor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard, who's leaving on Wednesday. All the best, Gina. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>